Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 83? unknown the exact circumstances under which this psalm was composed. Many think that it was during the time of Jehoshaphat. Um, but what is interesting is this, we look at this psalm, it is an imprecatory psalm. Um, but as we look at it, one of the things the psalmist does, is he, he draws upon the period during the judges. And if you remember in the period of the judges, uh, Israel would forget the Lord. They would come under oppression. They would be oppressed due to their sin. It would be God's judgment upon them. And then they would call out to the Lord. And the Lord would respond by raising up a judge. And through that judge, the Lord would work you know, by his providence to rescue his people that had been crying out to him. And so what is interesting is the psalmist cries out to the Lord and he re recalls the time of the judges, his prayer is particular not to raise a judge, but the Lord himself would act. And we're going to see the division of the text um, in three ways. The first is in verse 1, is a plea to the Lord. This is the crying out of the, to the Lord. And then in verses 2 through 8, it's because of the enemy that is attacking them. And we, we will see in verses 2 through 8 a, a description of the enemy. And we'll see a common thread of the enemies of the church through those verses. And then in verses 9 through 18, we see that imprecatory part of the psalm in where the psalmist is asking the Lord to bring judgment. And he describes the type of judgment he wants to bring. He wants the full fury of God's wrath to come upon the enemies of the church. So let us hear the word of God beginning in verse 1, a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom... And the Ishmaelites, Moab, and the Hagrites, Gebal, and Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher, also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zebah and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. <coughs> oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, 
As the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. And it begins with a plea, and you can put your, yourself in, the, in the, the mindset of the, the, the judge's period of time. This is not written during the period of the judges, but because the, the book of Judges is referenced throughout this whole entire psalm, we need to think of that type of oppression that Israel was facing, uh, and perhaps if it was during Jehoshaphat's time, during Jehoshaphat's time. And you would think of the battles of Syria that they had. And it begins out with this cry very boldly in verse 1. O God, do not keep silence and do not hold your peace or be still, O God. Now, what you have here, this, these, this, this description, silence, peace, and stillness, we shouldn't look at those as three different things, but rather view those as synonymous parallelism. And so it's stating the same thing. And in other words, three words are being used to, to say, state the same idea. And the plea is for God not to remain rested, for God to not be silent in light of these enemies of the church. Now you look at how it's stated, do not, do not. Well, these are commands to God. Now, is the psalmist so bold to command something of God? Doesn't this seem very bold thing to utter before the Lord? What, what does it mean to say to the Lord, do not hold your peace, or do not be still, or do not keep silence? What, what does such boldness mean for us? It means it's a freeness to go to our Heavenly Father. It means to go to our Father who has adopted us by the blood of His Son, and we have an openness to come to Him and to cry out to Him boldly. That's what this it means. Is that when the people of God are under oppression, when the people of God are, are distraught, that there's a freeness to go to their Father. As you would go to your own Father in a time of need, but you're going to your heavenly Father that is perfect and answers always perfectly. It seems to state this so boldly, though, from Asaph's perspective, it may seem as if God's doing nothing. That's why he's praying to him because they're under oppression and they're feeling the weight of it, and there seems to be no end in sight, and it seems to be a hopeless situation. Now, when Asaph goes and writes out this prayer, who is it addressed to? When God's people are under distress, they go to God. This is a, such an important and yet obvious point but one so often forgetting, one we forget. They're not asking God to raise up a military leader. They're not asking God to raise up a political leader. They go to God himself. They seek 
the highest source that is possible to seek. Why would they go to a lesser and weaker source? Why would they ask for God to do something that is infinitely less than what God himself can do on their part? They're asking, will you, God, intervene on our behalf? And they're simply saying, speak, O Lord, you, O Lord, who have called the heavens and and the earth into existence and maintain them by the power of your word. Please do not remain silent, but you, O Lord, speak, and your word is power. And so they're asking the Lord to speak. You think of that line in a mighty fortress is our God, one little word shall fell him. Been often a lot of debate about what that one little word is. Many think that it's the father that Luther was referring to, and I think that that's probably right. So let us retreat to the safe haven of our father who is almighty and protector and guarantor of the preserver of his people. Now, we see that they're under oppression, but what does that look like? Well, we see in the next section from verses 2 through 8, a description of the enemy. And let's take seriously what this enemy looked like and how this enemy manifested itself to help us get a proper perspective of what the prayer for, for destruction of the enemies really looks like. Because we could look at a psalm and say, this is God's word, so we will pray this upon our enemies. But let's look at what these enemies were like. Verse 2, For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Now, right away, you see a contrast to, to what, from Asaph's perception, the psalmist's perception, is that God is silent, but on the other hand, the enemy is not. The enemy's voice is, is loud and active and destructive. They, they're making an uproar versus, from the psalmist's perspective, it, it seems as if there's, there's silence from God. Notice what it says. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Well, what does this mean to raise their heads? This is the idea that they have exalted themselves. In fact, you see this phrase in Judges, in 8 and verse 28 of Judges, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And so that's the answer to the prayer, is that God would actually, uh, so that they could no longer exalt themselves, so that, that they raised their heads is that prideful, arrogant exalting of oneself. Think of it as boasting over the people of God. It's to, to add insult to injury, if you will, is this idea of raising their heads. And so it's those that raise them, their heads above you. And now let's notice what it says, those who hate you. That's the description of those that are raising their heads. So those that would exalt themselves are the very people that hate God. And, and I think that we need to hear the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, 
It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Lord, these people hate you. Will you visit them in their iniquity? You promised, Lord, to visit them. These that have exalted themselves. These that would assume victory. That's the, the part of the enemies of God, is that they assume victory is their own, that, that they face a weak enemy. And so their pride dilutes the enemies of Christ. Do you ever wonder? I know you do. Why do people persist in evil against the church knowing they will lose or that their plans will ultimately fail? Ever wonder that? Why is it that wicked people pursue unjust ends when we know that it will fail. Why do they do that? Well, this text actually teaches us why they do it. Because they do not believe they will fail. They do not believe they will fail. And that's because those that hate God have raised their heads in assuming victory over God. But that victory over God that they assume comes as a victory over God's people. And so for them, why do they continue to persist, though we know they will fail? Because they don't believe it. Why does Satan persist? He has a, an exalted head, he believes. Now notice the description of him in verse 3. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. And so they lay crafty plans, that is, that they conspire against God's people, the idea they consult against the, the treasured ones. It's interesting, Spurgeon says this, malice is cold-blooded enough to plot with deliberation, and pride, though it be never wise, is often allied with craft. I, I love what he says. Is, is malice is cold-blooded enough to plot with deliberation? And that's exactly what, what, is, what is described here of the enemies of, of Christ. And so the reality of, of a wickedness that plots against Christ's church is a real tangible reality that, 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 that the church of Christ has always faced. Is that there would be those that are plotting against Christ's people, whether they know that they're plotting against Christ or not, they're deceived with exalted heads following the God of this world that has blinded them. And so you see the example of their plotting, verse 4, come, let us wipe them out as a nation, let the name of Israel be remembered no more. So that's the example of their plans. It's not that they just want to affect and win a few battles. It's they want complete annihilation. They want to go Adolf Hitler on the church. Completely wipe it out. So that there's no opposition from the people of God. 
And then what you will notice here is they plan and plot against a people. Their hatred of God is manifested against God's people. We should not be surprised at the fiery trial that will come upon us. Why? Because they hate righteousness. They hate light because light exposes the wickedness and the darkness. Do you know why the world jumped on evolution? Because it gave liberty for their perversions. They hate, they hate light but love darkness. And so notice what the plan is. Let us wipe them out. Let us wipe them out as a nation so that our darkness is not exposed. It's hatred against God's people. The desire to see the church destroyed is the aim of Satan. And with such a powerful foe, with the reality where it seems oftentimes that we're outnumbered, let me ask you, where does our hope lie? Where does our hope lie? In the devices of man, do we trust in the war horse? Are, are, are we, we cling to this promise of Christ that he will preserve his church, that he will build his church, that nothing shall prevail against it. We, we take great joy and comfort in what we read is that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That Christ, who is seated at the right hand, is king and sovereign and most powerful over all things. Our hope lies there. We, just like the psalmist, will look to the highest source we can, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king, that rules over all things. So let us beseech our king for help and grace to be confident. Let us not become distraught or frightened. We're not a people of fear but rather we're a people that serve the living king that's risen and reigning even right now. And notice what the text says of us. It says in verse 3 that we are treasured ones. Some translations say hidden ones. That means that we are protected. We are kept safe in the Lord. Over and over again, we're told in the Psalms that the, the Lord is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our foundation. He is our shelter. Here it is. We are the treasured ones, the ones that are kept safe, that we are valuable, that we are precious to the maker of the universe. Maybe the psalmist may have thought temporarily, but we, we ought to think that we should never be snatched out of the Father's hand when we think of this verse. And that is Christ is interceding on our behalf, that Christ is praying on our behalf, that Christ will keep us always. Let us not become distraught because, as we see in verse 5, there's unity against the church. Notice what it says, for they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. You see this play out in history where you see strange allies joined together against a common foe. 
And then once the conflict is over, you have chaos again. Well, there's a common foe of those that hate God, and it's you. And they're united in that. They have unity in that they hate Christ. And they hate anyone that bears the name of Christ. They conspire with one accord. It goes on to say, against you they make a covenant. Think about the language there. Covenant against God. And, and there, you can see this in several places in the Judges, but I would rather us see this in a, in a greater sense is this unity of opposition is here. This unity is to war against God. And we, we never see this more clearly than with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in Acts chapter, in chapter 4 and verse 25, where we see Psalm 2 quoted, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? It's that same theme, that the, the, war, the nations, the, the, they're, they're plotting against God. And verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then we, we're, we're told what this actually looked like in this converging of, of and conspiring strange bedfellows that come together all of a sudden in unity against the Lord. In verse 27, For truly, in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, all uh, corners of the earth conspired against the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all in unity. Herod and Pontius Pilate were not friends until they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they became friends because they had unity in their hatred of Christ. What happens after this is mentioned in the book of Acts is the same threat came against the church, just as Christ said would come against the church. And they were united in their hatred against the church. And the persecution that the church faced, they are united in that they hate Christ, that they hate church. And even in the psalmist, it says that they will take a covenant to do so. Think of it in this sense as they'll, they'll, they'll shed blood in covenant with one another to shed the blood of Christ and his followers. They take a blood-bound oath. You see a demonstration of this unity in verses 6 through 8. The tents of Edom... And the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of, of Lot. Did you count how many I did? It's ten to one. You ever faced an enemy two on one? Three on one? Four on one. You get to ten on one, I don't care how tough you are. You're not, you're, not, you're not coming out of that. In such a situation, it would seem hopeless for the people of God. 
it would seem to be a helpless situation in which there, there is no way out. And, and, and in terms of a, a very temporal way of thinking that, that would be true. But for God. Ten to one is a joke to the Lord. He sits in the heavens and laughs and holds them in derision. And so then comes the request. The request for judgment. And it begins in verse 9. And we see two historical examples are, are given. So the first historical example is in verses 9 through 10. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. And so what's the call here is may they become dung. May they become nothing. May they become that which is trampled on by men. That which is, is worthless. And this is referencing Judges 4 through 5. And you think of the situation with Deborah and Barak. And then in chapter 5, in verse 21, in the Song of Deborah, you read this, The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. That, that, that picture of God wiping out his enemies. That's the plea of the psalmist. Like you wiped out your enemies in the past, do so again. Well, then there comes a, a, a second historical example that's referenced also from the book of, of Judges. And you see this in verses 11 through 12. Make their nobles like Orib and Zeb, all their princes like Zebah and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Now, that encapsulates everything that the psalmist has said about their current enemy. Notice what it says, is that what these enemies are saying, let us take possession for ourselves. Well, how would they do that? How would they take possession? They would wipe out the people of God. And so he's, he's referring back to those that had said this about God's people and now is calling God to act. And, and you see this unfolding from, from Judges 6 through 8. But in particular, notice what they said. In chapter 6 of Judges, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For wherever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. What have they done? They conspired. They have unity. They have commonality and that they hate God's people. And God's people are having to run, and their land is being made into pasture. Verse 4, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their, their livestock and their tents. They would come like locust in numbers. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that the land laid waste as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. That's what Midian wanted to do, is to wipe out God's people. Midian wanted to eliminate God's people. 
But the people cried out. And the Lord raised up a judge, the mighty judge Gideon. You read chapter 7 of verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against him as far as Beth Barba, Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan, and they captured, here it is, the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And so as the psalmist looks back on these historical moments, it's, 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 he's asking specifically, will you take their heads off? It's amazing what happens in verse 12 of chapter 8. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. They were outnumbered. It seemed like a hopeless situation. But they cried out to God, and God destroys them. In many ways, with extreme fury and violence. And so this reference to these two different historical periods is to call upon God to act again as he has in the past. But he doesn't stop there in verse 13. Notice what it says. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. One commentary says that will, that whirling wind is like a, can be translated as a will, and that is to never, never let them experience peace. And you know what chaff is. It's that worthless part of the grain that's thrown in the air that's just, just cast off. We're told in Psalm 1-4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. That means that they're nothing, that they're lightweight, that they can be just cast off to be burned in the fires. Make them like that. But he continues now in verses 14 through 15 that that's not enough but for God to pursue them. But notice the nature of this pursuit. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Pursue them as an unrelenting fire. May we hear them destroyed as you would witness a fire consuming and crackling with delight as it consumes all that's in its path and levels it down to ashes. And it's an all-consuming fire that needs to continually be fed and grows in its fury and its might. Pursue them as a fire pursues the brush. May we hear the crackling and the burning of our enemies. May it be an unquenchable fury that you bring down upon them. Verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. That they may call upon God. This seems to be a strange twist in an imprecatory psalm, doesn't it? 
all of a sudden you see the purpose statement that they may seek your name. And in verse 18, you see another purpose statement that comes with the judgment, that they may know that you alone are God Almighty. And we know that shame can often awaken a person from their stupor. It can pull them away from their idolatry. The terror of the fury of God's wrath is, is prayed for, for the purpose that they would, they would seek the Lord, that they would call upon the Lord. But how do we understand this? There are many that argue that there's an evangelistic twist in this, that it's for them to call upon the Lord in repentance. I don't think that that's an acceptable interpretation of this psalm as much as I would like it to be. Because you notice what it says here. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them not be put to shame and let them be put to shame and dismayed. For how long? For a little while that they call upon you? Let it be momentary? No. It's a forever statement. Let this shame, this disgrace be upon them forever. So how do we understand this? Is this that the enemies of God would repent and find forgiveness? Well, it's not opposed to that, but that's not what it's saying. It's that they may know God Almighty. The prayer is that they would recognize the power and might of God which would restrain their fury against the church. May they recognize your might and power that they may relent. Notice what it says, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, that is the self-existent God that is dependent upon no one, the almighty God, the most high over all the earth, the all-powerful God, may they recognize this and so that they would see their own doom. They would see the fruitlessness of their pursuit of God's people. Now, could this be the means for one coming to repentance? Of course. Could this be the means for the church to experience some reprieve from the onslaught? Absolutely. But notice what it says in Psalm 2. And speaking of Christ, in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't ever interpret that psalm as being a universal repentance of all people. That is a universal statement that everyone will come to recognize that Christ is king. Whether they like it or not. Whether they are like the, 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 the guards in the garden that came to arrest Christ and when Christ said, I am, and they fell before him. Or those that voluntarily worship the Lord because of his grace and mercy that they've experienced. Everyone one day will recognize God Almighty and Most High. And they will never escape it. And we'll never depart from it. But we'll forever experience the glory and the might and the power 
of a Savior that holds us and keeps us, they will forever experience his wrath as they experience the wrath of the Lamb in his presence for all of eternity. And so I don't believe that we can interpret the psalm as a prayer for repentance for them. I think that we should pray for people's repentance, right? This is where we go back to what was the description of the enemies of God's people. They were surrounded ten to one. Now, the psalmist here does not ask for Gideon. He does not ask for a David. He goes to the highest power. He goes to Almighty God, Creator and Maker of heaven and earth. And he prays that may the enemies of Christ be destroyed. May we pray that the enemies of Christ be destroyed. And may our hope be in the sovereign ruler of all things. And with that, our king has given us instructions. Our king has given us marching orders. What were those marching orders he gave to us? Go to all nations. They may hate you, but when you go to them and they hate you and they turn you away, shake off the dust from your sandals and go to the next place. Do not cast your pearls before swine. But we need to go. We need to be prepared for the gospel is the power unto salvation and the church is armed with the gospel. And because the church is armed with the gospel, it's the most powerful army on earth. Let us follow the example of God's word. Let us take our concerns to the Lord. Let us come to him with our desires and our fears. And let us cast ourselves upon our great merciful king that stands by his people and never departs from them. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our merciful king, our savior. Father, we take such great comfort knowing that Christ is king and sovereign over all things. Indeed, we faced heavy matters tonight in your word, but life brings heavy matters, but they're nothing to you. And so may we throw ourselves upon your mercy and come to your throne room of grace in time of need that we may receive help from your throne. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to sing a song.